the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Now then, boys, where are we going? To the top, Bry. Where's that? To the toppermost of the poppermost. Well, we're taking the time machine back to November of 1962. I'm Ed Chen. I'm Kit O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. The name of the show is Toppermost of the Poppermost. Let's see, this week we've kind of got a little bit of a soap opera story going on, but we've got some music too. <laughs> yes, it's definitely a very intriguing story we have, but yeah, we have some great music for you too. Absolutely great tunes, some classics. So starting off, Love Me Do was crawling its way up the charts. It, it got into the top 20 in November of 1962. Yes, but as we will see, the charts are still sounding quite different than they would once the Beatles really impacted the charts. But yes, Love Me Do is slowly crawling up the charts. Yeah, I still think that we're in this uh, period where it's a transition between the old and the new. And we cannot forget, they were in Hamburg for the first two weeks of November 1962, so they weren't around to do any promotion for the record. The record was really moving on its own momentum, well, and whatever Brian happened to add to it. <laughs> and as we talked about in the last episode, the fans, uh, the Liverpool fans, I think were a big part of it as well, you know, get it calling into stations and requesting it, and of course buying the record. So yeah, I mean, it was partially, Brian, partially kind of a grassroots effort. It's a shame they hadn't already invented music videos by that point. <laughs> well, they had. Uh, I mean, it would only be what less than a year before they started actually making promotional films. So the two acts we really want to talk about up front. The first is Helen Shapiro. A mere handful of months later, the Beatles would be on tour, doing a theater tour from February to March of 1963 with Helen Shapiro. Yes, indeed. I think it's kind of a fascinating relationship that they develop because they're touring with her as a supporting act, and they probably learned a lot from her because she's the veteran at this point and really had a gorgeous voice. It's a shame if she really didn't make any inroads in the U.S. because she really had this deep, rich, sophisticated kind of voice and really was just a well not just but she was a star in the uk but she really i think forged a great friendship with the beatles on that tour but her voice was also part of her problem you know she had this great voice but she was 14 years old when she first started recording they went and looked for songs for her and the songs that fit her voice were just completely inappropriate for a young girl of that age to be singing as were, you know, the songs that you might give to a 14-year-old. 
yeah, it's just astounding how young she was because listening to her, you'd think it was someone 30 or more. Just astounding, but really a beautiful, beautiful voice. You would find that though, wouldn't you, you know, where people at that sort of age, songwriters are writing songs and very often they weren't matching the songs to the artist. Like, you know, you'd, you'd find it even going as far back as Shirley Temple when they used to write songs for her. Well, I mean, that's also part of why Lennon and McCartney, you know, sitting on this bus, I, they must have heard those stories. It's like, well, we can write her a song, and that's where Misery came from. Yeah, that's right. And apparently, they did try to, to get the song to her, and she later said in an interview that she never got it, that somehow her management never brought it to her, and, and she was so disappointed, because it's, of course, a great song, and she would have loved to have recorded it. We've now discovered a little bit more about what was going on there. Uh, If you've ever seen the Arena George Martin special, George Martin's opposite, his Lex Luthor, was one Nori Paramore. Mm -hmm. And guess who was producing Helen Shapiro? (laughs) That's right. And actually, if you read Ken Womack's two-volume biography on George Martin, you will read all about the rivalry. (laughs) It's uh, quite a story. Well, and it's indirectly part of how the Beatles ended up with George Martin. Mm -hmm, That's right. So anyway, the tour in early 63 is notable because, well, it actually made the papers because the Beatles and Helen Shapiro on one night off, you know, they were playing in some sort of vaguely snooty country club and there was a buffet And the five of them, you know, went in and they asked the manager and the manager said, you know, fine, you're playing. So they went in and they were just sort of looked down upon by the crowd in this country club. And they got the police called in and they got escorted out, mainly because, well, the Beatles were wearing their leather jackets. Hoodlums. Yeah, exactly. So, (laughs) But but there were uh, news stories at the time where Helen was like, Oh, I thought my career was over because we got escorted out of this thing. (laughs) Probably gave her a little bit of an edge. But yeah, I do remember, too, reading stories about how they would just, you know, hang out on the tour and, and talk and, you know, really became friends. And then, as I recall, she had a, was it a television special? You're thinking about the Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops. And we'll get to that. That comes October. That's really the last time we ever hear from Helen Shapiro. Yeah. Look who it is. Yes, that's right. No Paul, though, because believe it or not, you know, this is a show of coincidences. That was the same show when Paul was off judging the miming contest across the room where Melanie Coe was. Oh my gosh. So. Wow. Nori Paramore also had another act, an act which was significantly. Bigger than the Beatles at this point in time. We mentioned him a little bit in the last show. Frank Ifield, during November, he had the number one song in the land with Lovesick Blues. Good old Frank. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And and before we get into the soap opera part of this story, I'll just mention, we talked in the last show about Frank's 
yodeling skills. And uh, boy, are they on display in Lovesick Blues. Really goes into this part where he does this fast yodeling, and that was his trademark. It's, it's on full display on that song. Absolutely. And now that she is leaving, this is all I can say. I got a feeling cold of blue loads, and my baby said goodbye. And I don't know what I'll do. All I do is sit and cry. Oh, 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 the last long day she said goodbye. Bloody well, I thought I'm gonna cry. She'd do me, she'd do you, she'd got the kind of loving. Lord, I love to hear her when she called me sweet baby. Such a beautiful dream. He was a big star at this point. His songs were hits, and we talked about the last time of hits across the pond, too. Absolutely. So this story takes us back even further than 1962. We're going to when George Harrison was 14 years old and one Iris Caldwell, the sister of Rory Storm, of Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, was a 12-year-old. So George would come across the Caldwells. I mean, it it was a fairly small community. Vi Caldwell, Rory and Iris's mother, you know, it must have been a very bohemian household because the kids all went into the arts. It was definitely an artistic family. And I think it up to this point, well, and unfortunately it wouldn't improve for a little bit, George, you know, was pretty unlucky in love. Maybe he was lucky at this point in time. Yeah, well, that's true. He's a 14-year-old kid. What he was actually doing was he had gone up to go and find Rory because he wanted to audition for the band that would become the Hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And there he met the lovely Iris. And they hit it off. They were on and off for a couple years. But I think that was his first kiss. Uh, It was certainly her first kiss. It was her first kiss. It was or not. Yeah. (laughs) She's been interviewed several times and commented on how good a kisser George was. Okay, then that was not his first kiss. (laughs) (laughs) No, no one's ever that good on the first time. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we move on from there. Obviously, George hooked up with those other guys, and he didn't join the Hurricanes. But Vi Caldwell's house would become a place that bands would sort of hang out. She's noted for making pots of tea and kind of whoever came over after their gig were welcome to come and hang out. Stormville. Indeed. And by this time, Iris was an established dancer. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, we were just talking about Helen Shapiro. Iris was also, you know, 15, 16 years old and earning at least a fairly decent living as a professional dancer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so she was booked at this uh, the dance hall to demonstrate a new dance sensation called The Twist. And she was wearing fishnet stockings, which attracted the eye of one James Paul McCartney. Those fishnet stockings do it every time. <laughs> <laughs> That's Martin, our you secret. Like the, you, like, you like the fishnet stockings? I, I couldn't get them to go over the thighs. No. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we won't talk about the hairy legs and the other story. One of the things which... <laughs> Vi would do at Paul's request was to comb his leg hair. Yes, I read that. Wow. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Moving on. So Paul and Iris hooked up and George didn't like that very much. Not at all. Um, You can understand that. 
But I mean, you know, it's not like George and Iris were exclusive. No. But still, with your bandmate, that kind of has to be a little bit of an issue. Yep. But one of the times that they were uh, dating, Paul produced tickets to the Empire to see the hottest singer around one Frank Ifield. So we're up to what would probably be early 62 at this point. Mm-hmm. And so Paul thought this is going to impress her. But there was something he didn't know. Iris and Frank, you know, I, I apparently had met on one of her dance gigs. And they had also started up a little something. <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> on this evening, it was a pretty embarrassing night for everybody. I think the story is that Frank knew that Iris was dating some Liverpool boy, but Paul didn't know about the other direction. No, he didn't. And it all came out (laughs) that night as uh, they were sitting in the audience. And as I understand it, they sort of kept their uncomfortable relationship, but they still went out through basically the time that we're talking about, because there's a story about the Beatles being toward the bottom of the bill right about now, late November of 1962. And uh, depending upon who you believe, uh, John Lennon tried to instigate a fight between Paul and Frank. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very John Lennon thing to do, you know. I was going to say, what a shock, right? You know, they were in the van going up to the gig and it's like, oh, go on, go on. What's he going to do? You know, he he didn't like that you're getting with his girl. Yep. Again, very, very John Lennon thing to do. Classic. Exactly. And then, so the the final notes on that, the audience didn't like the Beatles. I mean, it was Frank's audience because they were too loud that night, apparently. (laughs) How dare they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you know, whoever's still with us that had seen that show, they don't remember that they went to the Frank Ifield show. They remember that, oh yeah, the Beatles played on that show. But of course, I, I don't know if we want to divulge the last bit, you know, the two would be linked yet again. Yep, there's a post-postscript to this. So, you know, after the incident... When they went to the Frank Ifield show, apparently they were still going out, but they had kind of agreed, well, we can see other people. This is when Jane Asher would come into the picture. Paul would be uh, doing a gig, and on the evening that he met Jane Asher, when they left the theater, he didn't have a car. So they were driven from the theater by one of the other acts, Shane Fenton of Shane and the Fentones. Now, Martin noted that this is not the original Shane Fenton. No, the original Shane Fenton, I can't remember his real name, but the lead singer was named Shane Fenton. He passed away, and then they needed a new singer. So Brian Jury, which is his real name, he assumed the name of Shane Fenton and became the Shane Fenton of Shane Fenton and the Fentones. And then he would later change his name to Alvin Stardust. Yes. And have a lot of hit singles as well. Well, in the UK. Did he, did he come across in the US? I, I think he had a couple. Maybe. Not, not a large number, but he had a couple, I believe. Yeah, not major. Yeah. We mentioned this because that same Shane Fenton would go on shortly thereafter to marry one Iris Caldwell. <laughs> You couldn't See? write this, could you, for a, no. for a soap opera? You couldn't, no. You can't make this stuff up. As they used to say on the radio, and now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we need that as a clip. Now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> All right, now on to the charts, the British charts for November of 1962. As noted, Frank was at the top with Lovesick Blues. At number 10, we had Dwayne Eddy, Dance with the Guitar Man, which was also on the American charts at that time. Dwayne Eddy would go on to become a friend of George Harrison's. Longtime friend. Um, yes. And they actually met in 1968 during the making of the White Album, I believe. Well, or at least toward the end of the White Album. Dwayne Eddy was in London, you know, on business and decided, hey, I'll just take a cab over to Apple. And he actually wanted to see Paul. Paul wasn't there that day but when the receptionist called down he said hey but george is here and he'd love to see you because as we know george was a major fan and so Dwayne went down there and they you know hit it off and i think they must have been done with the white album by this time because uh, george gave him a copy or at least uh, according to Dwayne in an interview he did. At least a, you know, an acetate or a tape or something, yeah. Exactly, an early version. And uh, he said in an interview, introduce me to this skinny young blues singer who was hanging around named James Taylor. <laughs> kind of interesting. And that kicked off a long friendship. The tracks with Jeff Lynn were, I was doing the Art of Noise Thing. We were touring with the record. I ran into Jeff Lynn. He said, I know you're going to be doing that album after this hit. He said, if you want me to produce or write or play or anything you want, he says, I'm there for you. Sure enough, I got the deal and got the album with capital EMI. And I called him up and he says, well, I'm sorry, Dwayne. He says, but I'm right in the middle of a project now. He says, I'm producing uh, George Harrison. I said, oh, understand. No problem. It was just a shot in the dark anyway. I just thought I'd check because I told you I would. And uh, so we hung up, and 10 minutes later, the phone rang, and it was Jeff again. He says, well, I told George, he says, I, about our conversation and everything, he wants to put his album on hold and do yours. Huh. He very nearly became a Wilbury, in fact, didn't he? Uh, well, I mean, he was one of, the, one of the ones that was sort of hanging around at that point in time. Jeff Lynn, well, and George actually co-wrote a song for Dwayne Eddy during the mid-80s, so. One particular track on there, which, uh, and another amazing tie-up you talk about, that you wrote with the legendary Ravi Shankar, called The Trembler. Talk about unusual connect, um, you know, link-up. But that was through uh, George Harris. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. You know, George, uh, he hummed this uh, little melody for me, and he says... Robbie showed me this, and uh, he says, I think it's, he says, that one note is the greatest note I've ever heard. <laughs> and uh, the weird note, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Last note, George says, the greatest note I ever heard. <laughs> he just loved it, and, uh, and he loved the idea of putting two of his heroes together robbie and me yeah right sweet sweet man i don't think they ever really thought of him for the wilburys but you know we don't know exactly how much they thought of del shannon really and truly as a replacement they, no. they always actually no. said that no no one could ever replace roy right but it's interesting to note uh, just how much you know Dwayne eddie influenced george if you remember in the uh star club recordings there's a version which i love by the way a live version of i saw her standing there and there's a section in it where george 
goes into, you know, playing guitar and he goes into this Peter Gunn style guitar in it. And I mean, you know, that's Dwayne Eddy all over. Great addition to the song. I kind of wish he'd done that in the, in the recording. That was George trying everything yes. until he figured out what exactly was right. Definitely, you can tell in that version, he was listening to Dwayne Eddy, for sure. And you can see why. Just an incredible guitarist, and just years ahead of his time. Well, he's a very melodic lead player, which which perfectly matches with with George's style as a lead player himself. Now, one act which we didn't mention, who actually has been around these charts all over the place, is Carol King. We'll do a feature on Carol King and Goffin and King somewhere in here when we find the right month, but I just wanted to bring it up. Indeed. She's represented in, in these charts both a song of hers and uh, some songs she wrote. And as we know, Carol King had a tremendous impact on the Beatles. They covered many of her compositions. They were big, big fans. Indeed. There's a lot of uh, their songs all over the BBC sessions. Guys, why did you do that song? Did they ever do that one? As we'll see, a lot of the stuff that they recorded for Please Please Me was in the charts right at this period of time. You think it's really only a couple of months from when they record the album. They really were just ripping straight from the charts. (laughs) That's for sure. As as we go on and talk about it, it's just amazing. You look through the charts and like, oh, they did that on Please Please Me. Oh, they did that on With the Beatles. Just astounding. But it's incredible how quickly they actually picked up on the songs and then did their own versions of them as well. It's not like the songs that had been around for a long time. A lot of them were relatively recent songs. That's a really good point. They were very recent, and not only did they pick up on them, but made them their own. Yeah, when that was not necessarily the trend, Martin had mentioned the cover Bobby's Girl by Susan Maughan a name we don't know anymore, but she did show up with the Beatles at the Melody Maker Awards in 1963. But hers is just an example of what George Martin would describe frequently. They would just literally do a complete copy of the backing and stick their singer over it. That's a good point. Each night I sit at home, hoping that he will phone. 
yeah, the Beatles kind of broke that mold and do things like covering girl group songs. It wasn't done. So moving on, number 15, Sun Arise by Rolf Harris. Not memorable for the song, but Rolf Harris, uh, he would do several radio things with the Beatles. He'd be around uh, most memorable to us for timey kangaroo downsport don't ill treat me pet dingo ringo don't ill treat me pet dingo he can't understand your lingo ringo so don't ill treat me pet dingo all together now timey kangaroo downsport timey kangaroo down timey kangaroo downsport timey kangaroo down i think george's guitar's on the blink i think george's guitar's on the blink well, it shouldn't go. That's really on the blink. Only get the now. Time your kangaroo down, sport. Time your kangaroo down. Time kangaroo down, sport. Time your kangaroo down. And actually, this is kind of an interesting song. It's uh, kind of an uh, interesting that it was a hit. Sunrise, oh, sunrise, oh. George Martin produced the song, and in fact, interesting, he thought it was kind of a boring song when Ralph first played it for him, because it's sort of a chant over and over again, repeating this phrase, you know, the sun arise. Ralph countered by saying it's sort of a tribute to the Aborigines that would repeat this phrase over and over again, it would become mesmerizing. Now, he did rewrite it to add some more lyrics, but it's still kind of a repetitive song, and it's considered an early example of world music in a way. I mean, and it was certainly very unusual for the time, but interesting that George Martin was the producer. But, you know, as we know, he, at this point, was producing a lot of unusual records, you know. You know, it would have fallen into the comedy thing. That's right. what Phone did. Yep. Exactly. But also, uh, Ralph Harris, and it had to do with this song, had a pretty hilarious confrontation with John Lennon specifically. In 63, the Beatles starred in a Christmas variety show at the Finsbury Park Astoria, and the show's MC was Ralph Harris. He was performing this song to the audience, and he was kind of going on a long-winded tear about this song and explaining to the audience about the Aboriginal tribes and, and they could consider the sun to be a goddess. And all of a sudden, there's a voice coming from backstage, booming over the speaker saying, I don't know about that, Rolf. and so the audience starts laughing and so rolf glances around he can't figure out who is this where is this coming from so then he just continues he describes how the aborigines thought the shadows were the sun skirts covering the earth and a voice comes up again saying well of course you could say that but then again i don't know ralph maybe you're just making it up And, of course, that was John Lennon. So after the show, Ralph barged into the Beatles' dressing room, and I'll I'll clean this up because this is a family show, and shouted, if you want to blank on your up your own act, do it, but don't blank up mine. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh. <laughs> I guess John thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> and it was. It was. <laughs> All right. So I remember you was falling down the charts. It was at number 17 in the week we're looking at. At number 24, Because of Love by Billy Fury. I guess we were kind of hitting the end of the Larry Parnes era. Yes, from what I can tell. Do you rechristen all your boys? Oh, yes, I think this is terribly important. Um, otherwise, they, they would go on the stage with peculiar names that wouldn't be part of their makeup. For example, you might get Fred Bloggs or something like that. Uh, you could never have a rock and roll singer by, by that name. To think that the Beatles auditioned for him and he passed them up. We passed that audition. I think Larry picked up quite a few Liverpool groups at that audition. And of course, we thought, well, this would be great. You know, well, we ended up with this bloke called Johnny Gentle. But they did get to Scotland. That's true. Yeah. They, Johnny, it wasn't Johnny Gentle. Yes. Was this one of Billy Fury's last hits, do you know? or um, It must have been close to, to that sort of era for, for Billy. I mean... He'd basically get taken over by uh, by another of Larry Parnes' characters. Uh, Marty Wilde would end up being the in thing, wouldn't you? By the mid-60s, the Beatles and the group sound took over the charts, pushing Billy towards variety and showbiz. Right. He remained in the charts with a series of torrid emotional ballads. Well, and remember, we're only a couple of months from Please Please Me, and as you said at the top, everything changes. <laughs> Absolutely. When I first listened to this, I thought, you know, boy, that really sounds very um, Elvis. <laughs> and it turns out it's a cover of an Elvis song. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, okay, that makes sense then. Because of love, I'm a hundred feet tall. I can bounce this world like a little old. And since you mentioned it, there is a Marty Wilde song in the top 40 in November of 1962, ever since you said goodbye. So they were trying to keep a good thing going, but it just wouldn't last very long. No. Oh, and an interesting note. Did you know that Marty Wilde is the father of Kim Wilde? I did That's, indeed. Yes. Yes, I did not. I, I'd heard that, but it's, it didn't stick with my memory. So. Yep, did not know that. Of course, fellow 80s kids, you know her from Kids in America. Yep. And uh, you keep me hanging on, her cover of it. So, yep, this is her dad. Well, Kids in America, all the instrumentation and the backing vocals are her father, Marty, and, and her brother. Wow, that is very cool. And he, and he co-wrote it, right? Uh, yeah. Kids in America? Yep. Wow. Yep. That's right. So, yeah, did not know that. So I know that's not Beatles related, but I, I well, had to get that in. <laughs> nonetheless. And then closing out the British charts for November of 1962, It'll Be Me by Cliff Richard. Cliff Richard was really the one that they thought was going to be the golden child. And, you know, he certainly had his success in England. He, he had a little bit of success here in the States, but not like what was to come. Now, he, of course, did have a very long career in England. You of know. course. They're releasing as many Cliff Richard compilations as they are Paul McCartney compilations, just about. Exactly. So he did. For the British listeners out there, yes. I mean, you know, here he did have success in the late 70s with some great kind of disco 
era songs and then uh, the Xanadu soundtrack with Olivia Newton-John. Suddenly, that was my first exposure to Cliff Richard. Didn't know him much because he just wasn't that well known in the States. But yeah, it'll be me, up-tempo, kind of a nondescript rocker, sort of typical of that period. Well, if you see somebody climbing up a telegraph pole, if you find a new lump in your sugar bowl, baby, it'll be me. He's definitely done better songs. Yes, sure. for yeah. sure. What is your favorite Cliff Richard song, Martin? I don't think Kid or I can could come up with one yeah. necessarily. I actually think that "Move It" was a better rock song or rock and roll song for Cliff than than this. Yeah, one. I remember that. That, I agree. that was more, like part of his film, right? Yeah, I mean, that was his first actual hit single, wasn't it, I believe? Okay. Yeah, well, I've seen the movie. I mean, and there are infamous stories of double features with Move It and Hard Day's Night. Okay. At the drive-in. And, of course, he had the other film, Summer Holiday, which would be an English staple, but not so much in the in the U.S., I would have thought. I've seen clips of it on YouTube, and I definitely, you know, see the appeal of it for teenagers, particularly teenage girls. But, no, I don't think it made any impression here for whatever reason. Yeah, and it doesn't sound familiar at all, a group of people going around on a holiday in a, in a, on a bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's that? oh all right before we move on to the american charts for november of 1962 we want to take a minute to talk about i bury paul from our good friend bruce verber yes indeed uh it's a fantastic new uh, beatles inspired novel i buried paul uh none of the characters are actual beatles but many portray them in tribute bands some with names like the brian epstein massacre and the dr roberts made up entirely of MDs, of course. The book's protagonist is club musician Jimmy Kozlowski, the long-standing Paul McCartney of Long Island band Help. Jimmy's in a bit of a boots-and-suits rut. He's happy to perform the greatest rock and roll ever written, but is still chasing the dream of succeeding with his own original material. He also works a straight job, entertains at a nursing home, and yearns to connect with the daughter he's never met. Anyone who's ever been a musician or thought they wanted to be... That sounds a little bit like you, huh, Martin? Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) Anyone who's ever been a musician or thought they wanted to be one will recognise some of themselves in this story. As George Harrison described it many years ago, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. I Buried Paul is a love letter to the power of music, a funny and moving exploration of the sacrifices people make in service to its magic. It's a great stocking stuffer for the holidays, and if it's a virtual stocking you're stuffing, check out the Kindle and ebook special for just $4.99. Also, look for Bruce's appearance with me on When They Was Fab from several months back when the book first came out. So, on to the American shirts. November 1962 at number two was Elvis the King. And now I don't remember for sure from this period to roughly his comeback special. Elvis had a couple of film songs that hit, but he wasn't that big in the charts, was he? I mean, probably not as big as he was 
in his prime. I think he was probably steadily releasing some singles, but obviously the Beatles were at their height, not maybe not at this point, started to overshadow him. But Return to Sender was... It's a snappy little tune. It's, I, I like it's, Return to Sender. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not the greatest. It's poppy. It's, yeah, uh, it's he, he sings it very well. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's okay. You could make a compilation of songs all to do with the Postal Service advert, Please Mr. Postman, followed by this, I suppose. There you go. That's true. I mean, the lyrics are cute. It's clever. I mean, it's nothing brainy. It's nothing transformative musically. But it's a good pop song. Wasn't this sort of around the era where it was mainly looking towards films and then so most of the songs that you'd find from Elvis would be... Film related. Film related. Viva Las Vegas. And it's the Terry Gar era of Elvis's uh, career. Martin knows what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, For those of you who don't go listen to the last few episodes of uh, of Fab, Terry Gar was in nine separate Elvis films. Oh, I didn't know she was in that many. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, she didn't have any lines in him. She's a dancer. Right. Yeah, true. I wonder where Iris Caldwell was. Why didn't Elvis call her? Yeah, exactly. She could do the twist. What could have been? Yeah, Iris could have married Elvis, you know. Who needs <laughs> Priscilla? <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Uh, and I will close out our Elvis discussion. I finally got around to watching Boz Lorman's Elvis, and they did not do anything with the Beatles and Elvis meeting in 66. The Beatles reference is the same one you get in every 50s act biopic. Gee, it's 1964. Gee, there's the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I'm in trouble, aren't I? Oh, really? That's kind of the whole Beatles reference you get in Elvis from Boz Lerman. And then uh, it took him four years to do something about him. Yeah, well. <laughs> right. Anyway, all right. On with the countdown, as Casey said. At number 25, Roy Orbison, the man who would be a Wilbury with Leah. Great song. We talk about voices. He is the voice of at least, you know, operatic rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, in a way, he kind of (laughs) created his own genre. Everybody else who does it like that is imitating Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison, exactly. And Leia is a good example of how, you know, he did come from country roots. I'm working this in, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a, a course on roots of rock and roll, one of them's country, of course, and Roy Orbison came from that and from rockabilly, and Leia is a good example of his country background, because, you know, this song tells a story. It's, it's talking of, you know, longing for lost love. It's a tearjerker in the tradition of old country, but he transforms it into something that's more of a pop feel to it. And as you said, with that incredible voice, you know right away, this is Roy Orbison. And Roy also had another song on the Billboard charts at that point in time. Number 44, Working for the Man. Now you talk about an old school style song that Roy updated. There's one of those. Well, pick up your feet. We got a deadline to meet. I'm going to see you make it on time. And he actually wrote that based on 
his previous life, you know, he weren't working. I mean, that's, you know, he had a pretty tough background and it's a very fascinating, again, very evocative of his country background, telling a story, but a very personal one. Very unique talent, uh, you know, not just in terms of his voice, but the subject matter of his songs and, you know, something that just really hasn't been done in, in rock very much. No, but he was also really respected by all the members of the Beatles as well, wasn't he, Ed? Oh, absolutely. Well, mm. I mean, they respected him for his songwriting as much as his performing skills. I mean, the, you know, he would be on tour with them in the middle of 63. The famous story is that they would see Roy riding on the bus and they would want to do him one better and write write a song before he got back on the bus. There was one day that they had all gone to lunch and John and Paul in particular had finished early. They got back on the bus and they started working and they were writing, She Loves You. Roy came back and said, yeah, I like that. That's a real good song. And Roy turned around and started into Pretty Woman. Yeah. Wow. Both of them in embryonic stages. And of course, Pretty Woman has Pretty Woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, that's why. So, wow. So there's a case, yeah, that they influenced each other. That's great. But yeah, you can see how John and Paul learned songwriting from him. He really knew how to tell a story. He knew how to evoke feelings in the listener. But in the case of Pretty Woman, he knew how to write a good pop song, too. Okay, on to number 29, Little Eva with Keep Your Hands Off My Baby. Written by Goffin and King, the Beatles would cover it at the Beeb. And there's... Some stories that they were apparently considering it for Please Please Me, although it's not on any of the tapes. I was going to say earlier on, Ed, when we were chatting before the show online, were there a few Goffin and King songs up then for consideration, do you know? Well, I mean, as you say, Chains made it. I think there were probably at least one or two others that they might have been thinking of. And John and Paul were very big on the business of who were the songwriters that's apparently the second thing they would look after who was the act is who wrote this thing yeah but they also had a really good knack with a song such as this as being able to actually rearrange it to suit them you know it's like we were saying last time with twist and shout they have a way of just taking these songs and then melding them to fit them Although they didn't change Keep Your Hands Off My Baby that much for their BBC performance. They did a little bit. I mean, they certainly stylized it. They made it more of a guitar song. Well, and the harmonies. I mean, they certainly fit it to their unique harmonic style. I like the original, too. It's very much of its time. A bit of a Motown sound to it. It's in the style of locomotion that has that backing to it but i like this pop soul sound and yeah i mean the beatles version's fairly faithful to it they give it more of a rock edge obviously a little bit yeah and their harmonies are a little bit of i don't know maybe some everly brothers kind of harmonies on their live version of it it's a shame that they didn't put this on please please me not that it isn't a wonderful album but they easily could have done this or maybe even on with the beatles their cover is great incidentally uh helen shapiro also covered this i found Hmm. out okay uh i actually would like to have heard a beatles cover of the locomotion there's actually a tribute band who in one of their promo films did a copy of them as the beatles doing the locomotion it's pretty fun wow yeah that would have been fun they had done that. They, they would have killed it. 
All right. At number 42, this would be one of the early appearances of the Beach Boys, Surf and Safari. Classic. I think we probably won't do a feature on Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys until we get a little bit more into the 60s and as we get towards the real competition. But it's interesting that here they are, and it's all at the same period of time. Yeah. I mean, so clearly, you know, they were listening, paying attention to the Beach Boys early on, as Martin, you said, classic, you know, their classic harmonies. And incidentally, found out that this single was backed with 409, which is another great song of theirs. You don't hear that much about these days, but that's one of my other underrated favorites of mine. Those wonderful four freshman influenced harmonies and also just showing what a great songwriter brian wilson was i mean he knew how to write catchy hits that also had sophistication to them i would say john and paul took note of that (laughs) well brian was the genius i mean the other beach boys probably would have been as we would see into the 80s and the 90s were happy enough to keep cranking out mid-level songs about cars and girls in the beach yes brian didn't want to do that that's right And he was right. (laughs) Number 46, we have Chains, which, as we mentioned, you know, would go on to be on the Please Please Me album. It was written by Goffin and King. I really like the original, the Cookies version of this song. So do I. But I also absolutely love the way that the Beatles did it as well. That's a song that they changed up a bunch. Mm. And again, as you're saying, Martin, they really knew how to make it their own. And so early on, we saw that. This is a perfect example of it. And another example of how the Beatles were willing to take on a quotes, girl group song and make it their own. And boy, did they ever. I'm sure not many other groups at the time were willing to do this. You know, And it is such a catchy, catchy song. And very clever lyrics, very relatable, I think, and in many ways. And just a classic, classic record and a, one of, uh, I think, Goffin and King's best compositions. And then at number 48 was the Everly Brothers song, which we had mentioned, Don't Ask Me to Be Friends. It's kind of cool to see that the way that the gospel is told to us is 59 came early 1960 came the early stars of rock and roll just sort of dropped off the face of the earth that's not the way it was you know elvis is still there the everly brothers are still there little richard had a song in the charts in october while they weren't the big influence and they weren't necessarily pushing things forward they were still making music and getting it out to people who were willing to listen to it But it's not the only single you've got in the charts in the UK and the US around then then from the Everly's either, because you've also got the other one, No One Can Make My Sunshine Smile. So they were still a big quantity or a big act on the charts. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. They had two singles and they may have been past their huge hit making peak at this point, but they were still a factor. And as we know, their harmonies hugely influenced the Beatles. They had the Everly Brothers in mind when they did the uh, harmonies on the song Please Please Me and so many others. Maybe two of us, probably it's who did the Everly Brothers not influence. <laughs> well, and, and of course, yeah. of course, Paul would become one of their big backers later. On the Wings of a Nightingale, that's a great song. Beautiful song. It is. I, I also like, um, is it in the Get Back Sessions where one of them shouts to the other, or the one of the Beatles shouts, take it, Phil. 
or, yeah. or something. Yes. And, and they're basically calling each other Phil and Don, aren't they? And then, and then of course, Paul says Phil and Don in, in Let Them In as well. That's right. Yeah. So. Gives them a little shout out. That's right. Closing out the charts at 53, we had Green Onions, which we talked a little bit about last time, Booker T and the MGs. At 58, we have another Tommy Rose song, Susie Darlin'. <laughs> I listened to it again. It didn't make much of an impression on me. No, it's kind of the typical Frankie Albani kind of style pop of that time. You know, sorry, Tommy. <laughs> I'm sure it's a great guy, but yeah, I mean. It's the, the stuff that Jerry Morrison was making fun of in Complete Beatles. Right. Yeah, but that was what was on the charts at the time. And then closing out at number 68, Arthur Alexander, Anna, go to him. You know, John Lennon's favorite, the Rolling Stones' favorite as well. I cannot say enough about Arthur Alexander, and I cannot say enough for the Beatles for introducing me to him. I mean, this is one of the things, you know, early on when I started getting into the Beatles, it was... Who was this guy? You know, I mean, deal with this soldier of love, Arthur Alexander stuff, love the songwriting. And he just had such a powerful voice. And then here, you know, for, for Anna go to him, which I believe was about his soon to be wife at this point, you know, he sings with such passion, such sincerity. He was known in fact, as a country soul pioneer and thank God for the Beatles for covering his songs because otherwise, you know, he would have unfairly gone into obscurity. Soldier of love was a completely lost song for a good long time. It's really only when the BBC recordings of it came around that people started, well, what is this song? Is this an original? What's the deal here? Exactly. And in addition to so many other things the Beatles did, thank God that they brought Arthur Alexander back from obscurity because, boy, what a talent. You know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah, Soldier of Love is better than Anna, but this, that's not saying that either of them are particularly middling or even bad songs. It's, I love both of those songs. Yep. Soldier of Love, I, I almost wish that they'd have actually found a place for that on one of the studio albums as well. Because yes. when that came out with the BBC set, it was like this hidden gem where you were, you, you know, you got to that song and you thought, my God, where's this song been all these years? Yes, yes, I agree. All right, so that is November of 1962. We'll be back soon with December. Happy Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays. Bye. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermos. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought how stupid that is. How stupid is, is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.